I think my angle in public health was very much the professional message wasn't so much focused on the clinical aspects of how we're going to treat long COVID. It was really about this is a problem that we have to quantify, describe, because if we don't do that, we you don't realize how how significant the problem is, and then you you know that you don't come up with solutions. Which obviously the di- this is a direction that the world has um, moved into, but very much slower than than I would have liked. Welcome to the sixth and final episode of Massively Disabled, a long COVID research podcast. My name is Elena Gautima-Maril, and I'm going to lead our debriefing session today. It will make more sense if you've listened to the prior episodes, but even if you haven't, you're more than welcome to stay. I wanted us to reflect on the themes that came up in our research journey by flexing our narrative attentiveness muscle. Let's pay close attention to what stories were shared, how knowledge was offered, and how I structured it all. I'll give you my analysis, but I invite you to devise your own alongside me. You may see things that I missed. Most of all, I wanted this project to be one of contributing to a counter-archiving movement. Disabled people are here, have been here, and will continue to be here in ways that biomedicine cannot capture. I wanted my research to reflect that. At the same time, it would be misleading to omit the place that biomedicine has in disabled and chronically ill people's lives. At this point in my reflection, I don't think it's responsible to act as if crip culture can evolve in total isolation from the material reality of using health services, participating in trials, and co-producing research. With this in mind, I identified three themes relevant to long COVID in our journey together. The first theme is something that was not new to me, but it became more apparent and urgent as I continued my research. And that is the problematic nature of the mind-body and chronic acute binaries. Speaking with historian of medicine Kate McAllister, it became clear to me that any public health programs we create in the UK to address long COVID will inevitably be shaped by this country's inadequate structural support for people with chronic illnesses. The health service infrastructure, as we know it today in 2023, is founded on the division of health for the, quote, independent sick, or those who have a chance to recover and return to the labor force and therefore be productive members of society, and the, quote, chronically diseased, who ostensibly offer no such return on investment. As we saw with post-polio and MECFS, it's not always easy to identify the source of symptoms for chronic conditions. And historically, but also today, the mind-body distinction is not neutral. There is still a tremendous amount of stigma associated with mental health diagnoses, including the fact that you tend to be treated as someone with no or less agency than a sane person. With a multi-system disease like long COVID that can affect people across the mental-physical health spectrum, this kind of dualism is not helpful. 
especially when it comes to whose advocacy is treated seriously. At the top of the episode, you heard from Nisreen Alwan, a professor of public health at Southampton University. Nisreen gave a TEDx talk in 2022, where she was very open about how her own experience with long COVID changed her perspective on positionality and objectivity in public health research. Here she is on the topic of why some people with long COVID resist being associated with conditions like ME-CFS that have been labeled as psychosomatic or mental health conditions. Uh, that sort of physical mental health divide, which is really, and the whole, it is harmful. But it's understandable that people struggling with long COVID resist mental health labels because it's a multi it's, it's predominantly a multi-system uh, condition you know affecting different systems of the body and uh, needs that holistic kind of support and management and just being labeled as you know in terms of one of the areas if if they if if this is an area that they struggle with and, and indeed it, it is for many people as we know from the studies you know things around you know um symptoms um linked to anxiety or depression or you know cognitive um uh, cognitive difficulties, etc. Um, so neuropsychiatric uh, sequelae of, of COVID, we have good evidence of them, but a lot of the time it is part of a multi-system disease. So, so it's not helpful. It's not really helpful to divide that. But because of the narrative, uh, people feel dis- defensive and almost like you can kind of compartmentalize, you know, your symptoms and say, um, well, I'm going to in order to seek help and support, I could make my physical symptoms more prominent and my maybe mental health symptoms less prominent because I need that support. And if I do it the other way around or if I do it kind of equally, then I could go another in another kind of care pathway that doesn't appreciate the rest of my long COVID symptoms. It's not helpful uh, to the patient. So it's not helpful for the service as well because, you you know, the whole point of the health service is to make people better because otherwise you, you get more use of the health service and there's increased cost and increased burden um so that's not good also it is very it's painful to see because again this is about stigma attached to mental health uh because you know uh, and i think that is still still they're still alive and well isn't it and they are that reflected in in relation to these to 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 kind of these multi-system conditions like me and, and and long covid um, and it shouldn't be there because you know whether whether you have um, mental health symptoms as part of a of a of a of a, of a multi system condition or whether you have them as as a kind of that on their own that shouldn't be there. Following from this, the second theme is the need to recognize the epistemic authority of disabled and sick people. Not only do we develop tons of knowledge from our lived experience. We are the primary stakeholders in our health and well-being. As such, our agency must be recognized. Coming into this podcasting project, I was looking for ways to make disabled knowledge legible to biomedicine. But now I'm not so sure that was the right question. I mean, I don't think we should give up on the concept in general, but right now it's not the hill I'm willing to die on. I'll speak more on this with theme three, So for now, let's highlight the negative consequences of disregarding the epistemic authority of disabled people. I spoke to Christina Cortez, who reached out to me through Body Politic, a queer feminist wellness collective that launched a COVID-19 support group in 2020. Christina's long COVID symptoms included respiratory and cardiac issues, 
but she was reluctant to go to the hospital. So she started tracking her symptoms. So she started tracking her symptoms to at least have some data ready for her medical appointments. Then she faced some issues. But for them, I didn't really have any issues. Um, They were pretty much up front. They knew my general history, what was going on before with my asthma. Um, The cardiologist was the main issue that I had. And the pulmonologist was really nice, too. I didn't have any issues with her. What kind of issues did you encounter? For the cardiologist, um, he came in and I had told him what was going on. I had my, I had my, I wrote down every day um, my oxygen and my heart rate and um, my temperature about three to four times a day. And I brought that in too so that I could show him um, kind of a day by day basis of what was going on. But he told me I needed to lose weight. Um, he asked what, what I was eating and the, the RN or the CNA that was in with him had said, well, she's Amish, you know, they garden, they freeze, they can, like they, they eat healthy. And it didn't really click once he asked that question the first time, like what he was insinuating, um, until she had kind of stepped up for me. Um, so he had just said that I need to lose weight and I'll be fine. My heart will, my heart will get back to where it should be. Um, and it never did. Christina's situation is far from rare. Facing systemic disbelief is a form of epistemic injustice and medical trauma that can lead in some cases to anxiety, depression, chronic pain, and complex PTSD. Since COVID-19 is a mass disabling event, we urgently need to develop sustainable practices to minimize this kind of harm for people living with long COVID. Now for theme three. As you might have noticed, these themes cut across each other and are quite porous. Themes one and two build into each other, and theme three is no different. Instead of focusing on epistemic authority, I'm finding it more and more interesting to look into epistemic humility. I take my definition of humility from the medieval philosopher Thomas Aquinas. Quote, The virtue of humility consists in keeping oneself within one's own bounds, not reaching out to things above one, but submitting to one's superior. End quote. To be clear, the superior Aquinas has in mind is God which may not be up everyone's alley. If you prefer, you could take a Spinoza's twist and replace God with nature. The bottom line is that I'm not trying to say that disabled people are inferior and therefore should make do with epistemic humility instead of fighting to have their epistemic authority recognized. The way I see it, keeping oneself within one's own bounds doesn't need to mean making yourself small. Instead, It's in line with feminist and indigenous theories of boundary and relational work. Instead of seeing yourself as a property to protect, you see yourself as an individual in relation. And not all relations are empowering. Therefore, not all knowledge is worth pursuing by everyone at all times. Biomedical agents also need to practice epistemic humility and accept that they do not and cannot have access to disabled knowledge within the bounds of biomedicine alone. 
This kind of relation to knowledge is in opposition to a colonial and imperialistic attitude to gathering, claiming, and using knowledge. The way I understand it, it is not virtuous to try and accumulate knowledge at all costs, including at the cost of our relational webs. The goal is not necessarily to know more, but to know better, to view wisdom as a dynamic and interdependent process, not as something to hoard. This is getting kind of heavy, so why don't we lay down our packs and take a break? Do you have long COVID? Are you researching long COVID? Are you a researcher researching long COVID having long COVID? Do you have any questions about the podcast? You can contact me at massivelydisabled at gmail.com. To be clear, I'm not saying we, as researchers across disciplines in general, should stop trying to identify long COVID through a biomedical or health sciences lens. At a micro level, it's not my place to tell people what lies within their bounds. What I can do is advocate for reflection on the existence of boundaries to knowledge. Biomedicine may not be willing or able to understand or align completely with disabled knowledge and crypt culture. But this doesn't mean we need to give up on collaboration and coalitions between the two forms of knowledge. It means that we have to invest in what Tuck and Yang call an ethic of incommensurability, or a process of being in relation that acknowledges deep frictions and even contradictory aims. Here's this read again. It might be too optimistic to say we're going to have a universal agreed diagnosis of exactly what long COVID is that applies all across the world and everybody follows it because that's not even the case for many long established health conditions. But I think we are on the way to kind of establishing these criteria and guidelines because if none of the definitions, criteria, guidelines would be perfect, but you would have something to fall back and say, well, okay, well, we're following this. What are the advantages, disadvantages? How can we improve? And there's something that you are measuring to assess what people do, what, what, what happens is if you don't have that, then it becomes very variable and you're not really measuring the quality, you know, of the service or the quality of the, or, or the outcomes from it. And this is what needs to be consolidated with long COVID. And I think there's been also a lot of focus on or frustration, obviously very understandable about the lack of established treatments for long COVID. But I think that there are other aspects as well that need a lot of attention, including while we, there is re- undergoing you know, there's uh, research to find the treatment. What are the mechanisms for support and acknowledgement, particularly around employment? I mean, in, you know, how people are coping with having that long COVID. A lot of people with long COVID don't necessarily completely stop working, but 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 because of this episodic nature in, in many people with long COVID, you need to have some certain adjustments, for example. Um, how can you have more support in the community um, around things that are caring responsibilities and other social activities or etc. I think these are aspects that are very important and they need to be looked at as well because even though you, there might not be a definitive treatment for many people and we hope there will be in the future, uh, there are certainly things that you can do to support people so that they can function the best they can while having the condition. So how do we prevent that? I think, I think, I, I, I obviously, I think the main answer, and I that 
pops out at me throughout this whole journey is that we need to be a bit more humble dealing with uncertainty and not knowing what's going on. Uh, we need to stop kind of um, rushing to get an answer because we feel more comfortable having an answer about things because then we can have uh, a clear way of dealing with a problem. So I'm talking about this, maybe an example in, in the health in, in the health system or health sort of healthcare professional patient um, context, but also in research, also in, in, in health policy. It's that rushing to kind of box and have answers, you know, pushes people and entities and, and organizations and bodies um, into this kind of simplistic categorization because you tick that box. And I think that uh, I think that's quite harmful um uh, in, in from this perspective uh so i think we, we shouldn't be doing that and i think that's a lot to do with the uncertainties like acknowledging the uncertainties not having these judgments around them and and treating people as a whole basically um but it's it's very difficult it's it's very difficult but i think that that's not all of this uh, accusation that you know long COVID, the simplistic uh false uh, narratives that long COVID is in your head, you know, stereotypes as a uh, as a condition for certain population group, you know, women or, you know, kind of middle-aged women uh, or whatever group. Or it's been very, very, very prominent in kids as well, you know, with parents having kids with long COVID, um, linking it straight away with, oh, well, they've been affected by lockdown and it's about kind of, their, you know, um, linked to depression, anxiety. Of course, these could be elements of having long COVID. They could be a set other elements of, of you know, uh, of their of the children's experience or other people's experience, uh, but that shouldn't. None of this should be detrimental to the care and support, you know, for long COVID. Um, and you could give care and support without rushing into certainty about things and kind of boxing people or boxing symptoms straight away. You can offer that in the meantime. So at this point. I'm thinking that the field of long COVID studies should lean into models of research that center moving with and through incommensurability, rather than aiming for consensus. If we're going to crip engagement and to recognize the agency of disabled people within chronic and public health, we need to move from a place of knowing our own boundaries and not measuring success solely in terms of breaking them down. As for me, I'll continue to try to understand long COVID as a mass disabling event, that is, as a social, political, and epistemic phenomenon. To do this, I would like to work with sociologists and employ qualitative methods in the next phases of my research. I'm also working on an article that analyzes the role of epistemic authority and epistemic humility as it relates to ME-CFS, and I'm excited to delve deeper into the wonderful work of the What Would an HIV Doula Do collective. The term Crip Doula was coined by Crip ancestor Stacy Park Milburn and refers to someone who accompanies another who is transitioning into disabled or differently disabled life. In English, we usually use doula to refer to someone accompanying a person through pregnancy, childbirth, and the postpartum period. But there are also death doulas who specialize in accompanying the dying. In this sense, Doulas are there to ease an emotional transition. And in the case of crypt doulas and HIV doulas, these are generally people with lived experience of disability or illness themselves. As far as I can tell, 
the Crip doulaship reframes the categories of mentor or peer support through a lens of knowledge of care. It walks the fine line between recognizing elders, culture, and tradition, and refusing strict knowledge hierarchies. This is something I'm keen to explore some more. I'll also be contributing a six-part companion series to Massively Disabled to the Polyphony, a critical medical humanities project sponsored by the University of Durham. So make sure to subscribe to this podcast to get the updates. So this is it. We've come to the end of the road for now. You'll notice that we are exactly where we started. The point was not to discover new lands, but to find new ways of looking at our apocalyptic reality. Who knows if I'll be able to continue this research, but I sure hope so. I would love to hear from you. You can send me your questions, comments, and reflections at massivelydisabled at gmail.com. If you learned anything at all throughout this journey, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, as this helps other people find the show. Okay, I'm going to go curl up and think about crip research. From Chronic Illness, Slowness, and Writing by Mel Chen in Crip Authorship. Quote, in the end, writing with chronic illness or with disability is not the same as writing crip. And writing crip isn't the same as writing accessibly. Writing crip isn't necessarily related at all to access, except perhaps to trace the figure of a departure from conventional choreographies that may happen to be shared with someone else or some others. And I'm not sure I would call that access so much as an occasion to live together profoundly. If Crip obfuscates the problematic of scale, such that it seems to reject the hierarchical preferences by which inclusion, access, and accommodation are organized, or even more so, inclusive, accessible, and so on as properties of a thing, then I would hope for it to thrive all the more, to attain in the writing and not be scraped away by the requirements of publication. The troubled time of writing in conditions of chronic illness and under conditions of institutionalized publication intensifies the need for a poetics, a generative worlding that also makes its own way into that worlding, a poetics that can be lived as much as it can be written. I don't know the shape of that poetics, and it must not be prescriptive but I feel that it is needed more than ever, end quote. Until next time, yours in mass disablement, Elena. Massively Disabled is hosted, written, and produced by me, Elena Gauthier-Mamarin. Music is by Morgan Kluckkaya. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at MassDisabledPod and write to us at MassivelyDisabled at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible with the support of the Center for Biomedicine, Self, and Society, Usher Institute at the University of Edinburgh.